Welcome to another episode of Learn with Bestern, where we discuss the latest trends in leadership development, self-development, as well as well-being. There's so much information out there. We want to make sure we bring in the latest insights and research based on neuroscience and behavior change to give you the tools that you need to make a change in your personal and professional lives. Join us on a journey to learn more. We hope you enjoy this episode and don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with others that might find it helpful. is Samuel Seltzer, um, and he is a leading behavioral strategist and habit expert, having worked with organizations across Europe, Australia, and North America. Among other things, he is also one of the world's first chief behavioral officers in tech, and he specializes in applying insights from behavioral science and behavioral economics to build user-centered and habit-forming products. At the forefront of emerging field of behavioral design, Samuel is a frequent keynote speaker. He curates the popular newsletter Habit Weekly, which I'm a fan of, and has co-authored Nudging and Practice, basically helping organizations making it easy to do the right thing. So his book offers a comprehensive guide to organizations interested in understanding and systematically utilizing behavioral insights. So, and he has something really cool to share with us at the end of the presentation as well. So, um, if you gentlemen can turn on your cameras now, and the, uh, you guys, many of you already know Yvonne and I, so, uh, but those of you who don't, my name is Elena, I am a managing partner at Bestern, and uh, come from background learning and development, really excited about this topic, really excited about having uh, Samuel with us. I have been following his content and learning from him for a few months now, if not longer, to be honest. So I'm really honored and, and, and excited that he's here with us. And of course, we have Yvonne. Thank you, Elena. <laughs> so just a, a quick one about myself. You already know that my background is working in corporate, uh, mainly in the area of corporate innovation. Uh, one year and a half ago, we started working with Elena in, in Bessern, where we are helping organizations to uh, learn, acquire, acquire knowledge, to work in productive habits, and basically to work in a better well-being. Good, welcome, welcome. So let's go ahead and jump in. So as I mentioned to you guys, that we have a few questions we're going to be asking Samuel, but also if at any point you have questions, uh, just drop them in the in the chat box or the question box, and we will get to them uh, toward the Q and A section. So uh, Samuel, let's just go ahead and kick it off. So what is the first question? What is the current situation of employees in corporates, and what do you see as the CEO agenda for the organization? Sure. Well, first of all, I'm uh, really happy to be here. Thanks for the lovely introduction. Uh, it's going to be fun to talk about these kind of things during the coming hour. So I would think about this from maybe zooming out a little bit. We're going to obviously cover a lot of topics around productivity, well-being, habits, and so on. But one thing that I've noticed, especially talking to a lot of leaders, is that we're still struggling with kind of managing how how to kind of look at the current situation. And what I would look at this is I would see this as rather than a disruptor sort, more of a accelerator. So what we're going through now, the whole COVID situation is very much an accelerant of, in some ways, what was already coming. So while other crises maybe reshapes the future while it happen, COVID is making the future happen faster. So where companies were planning to be in 10 years, they're kind of forced to be today. So whether you're planning to be organizationally, whether kind of maybe company model, employee kind of structures, all those things that we're planning maybe in a 10-year span, they freeze being there today. They have to be much more flexible in terms of working uh, remotely. Uh, that's just the beginning, and there's so many changes that's happening right now. But maybe apart from the traveling industry, uh, we can't really expect things to so like go back to normal, so to say. 
uh, for most organizations, again, we've just kind of accelerated to the point where we need to be now, where we already was going to go maybe in 10 years time. And so obviously that means, you know, working from home, using more online tools, customers using more online shopping, everything is more, obviously much more online. And so I think that's the kind of the tremendous shift that we're seeing now. And that the many habits that have been shaped by what's going on for the last, let's say, four or five months, they're not going to just turn back to where they were before. They're going to be quite sticky and they're probably going to be lasting for a very long time, if not for the foreseeable future. So, so that's the kind of the main thing I would think about right now. That's kind of the bigger, big picture. Yeah. Anything here? I just want to build a little bit more on, on what Sam was mentioning. So it is, there is an urge, in fact, to accelerate because of the, the current crisis in terms of the development of, of, of corporations. At the same time, what we see is that the impact on, on well-being has been quite heavy. Let's, let's call it uh, as it is. The level of absenteeism due to mental health issues has been, uh, it is growing in terms of the share of, of, of leaves because of, of mental health issues has, has been growing. There is also this, this thing that, that we call presenteeism. So people who are showing up to, the, uh, to work, and in fact, they cannot be at their best. They are just sitting in front of the computer and because they haven't slept well, because they, they, they have a certain level of anxiety that blocks, in fact, the brain. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that Sam is going to comment on that because the brain has a lot of things to do with this, uh, this presenteeism, in fact, how to overcome the challenge. Then there is so, the other thing that has been growing, the other feature is the Libyism. Basically, people who cannot get out of because of technology are continuously connected to work, and they, they don't have any means to empty their head to be at their, uh, at their, at their best. And the, the worrying thing is that this is affecting the younger generation of workers. These are the, the uh, they are paying the biggest toll in uh, uh, at work, and there are certainly things that we can we can work on in order to change. So while there is an acceleration in terms of the the things that we need to do, technology it becomes a little bit more like uh, a necessity to move forward. People, their uh, their well-being is continuously affected and is growing. Mm. Uh, I wanted to actually pick up on that. So um, do you see the strength, Sam, that's around, that's kind of targeting different parts of the world, right? So we're in the Middle East, but you're in Europe. Do you see the same kind of trend happening in organizations there as well? And also, Yvonne uh, mentioned about the youth being most affected. And we hear this a lot. They say, oh, it's the young people that are being affected even more. But do you have any insights about why perhaps the youth is being affected by this? Or Yvonne, whichever, whoever wants to, to uh, add to this, yeah. Sure. Well, so the first question I would say, it's in many ways, it's obviously today you'll see a lot of big changes from country to country, not only from, you know, I'm in Sweden, right? And so if you look at Sweden versus Norway, something like that, it can be some big um, differences in some ways, but at the same time, looking globally, uh, talking to leaders around the world, I've seen very little difference in some ways. The challenges are similar. The challenge is kind of what Ivan was mentioning that we're faced with this, you know, challenge to accelerate in so many ways and do things differently so quickly that we're struggling with managing everything from, you know, again, talking about the more like business model challenges to just managing the health of our employees and, and the well-being of them. And so I think I think that's definitely a lot of similarities across the world. Mm. In from my side, I, I, I want to add the fact that younger generation have higher expectations than my generation. I'm in my 40s, so basically we were told what to do, how to how to work. Uh, exactly as I said it, not only what to do, but also how to do things. Now the expectations of younger younger generation is about having more autonomy and what more decision power. Uh, they care a little bit more about the mental mental health that versus our generation that maybe uh, when I say our is not just a generation Elena I wasn't intending that you have the same age as me uh, it's more about that we were more focused on the success on the productivity leaving behind a little bit the uh, the the aspect of 
how well do we feel mentally in order to progress? If we were not asked to, to bring to the table uh, our level of autonomy, we were asked just to produce. Younger generations have higher expectations and that's why they, they are the ones that are the most affected. Uh, in, in the case of our own practice at Besson, we also see that there is a big share of, of, of people who were born during the, uh, during the 90s who are after six months they already feel the level of stress growing uh, because they, uh, there is a mismatch between the values of the company that is dictated mainly by a, by a generation before uh, and and uh, and this young generation which affects drastically uh, what to do and uh, how, how they react the other thing is that um, the younger generation have a, uh, they would go and work for whoever has a bigger sense of purpose, and this is something that is missing in a lot of uh, a lot of companies is to 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 communicate to make it clear to for everybody that there is uh, an aim uh, why we are working. They need to have that. They are not working for the money. So we have got in our hands some some studies that show that. Uh, younger people are capable of earning even 40% less of, uh, of, of money, of salary, if they find a bigger purpose in another company. So they, they are not as, as much focused on the, on the monetary aspect as our generation. Mm. Yeah, good point. Um, so uh, Sam, now that we are working from home and and I don't want to necessarily focus on the fact of that COVID happened because it happened, but I think when it comes to productivity and well-being, I think it's something that we are continuously struggling with as people in general. So I think COVID just kind of made it worse and made it harder for us to stay productive. But forget forgetting about COVID maybe for a moment and just just looking at pure productivity and and well-being of ourselves in the workplace, working from home. Some people are now returning uh, to to the offices at least. At on part-time basis what can we what are some things that we can do to to increase that what kind of habits can we design here sure so i guess one core truth within behavioral science is that to a large degree we are products of our environments right so obviously we have our genes but still they are expressed and dictated by the environments we we inhabit and so it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about working from home or working from office and so on, we always need to consider and how, how we can shape these environments to bring the best out of ourselves and, and the people maybe that work for us if we have a business. And so this includes, includes uh, the digital environments as well. So that's probably what I think a lot about is just thinking about how can we shape these environments to bring the best out of, out of people from this perspective of behavioral science. And so, what I would usually, I guess, advise against is, is to go too quick to thinking about solution-based thinking. And what I mean about that is that it's very easy to want to come up with solutions where I would start thinking about which are the main barriers stopping employees or ourselves from being productive. So solutions solve problems. <laughs> and so if we're going to come up with good solutions, we have to understand the problem that they're trying to solve first. So I think that's the core, core issue. And since I would say across organizations, they are very different. The problems are very different, uniquely different to each organization. What is the kind of the main barrier stopping us from being productive can be very different from one organization to another. And so I think that's kind of my general way of thinking about things, starting with looking at, okay, what are the main barriers that stops me or my company employees from being productive? So for example, mm -hmm. a lot of common ones today are like multitasking. We know that the recent research shows that 90% of people in Zoom meetings multitask at the same time. Um, that says probably a lot about the quality of those meetings, but also maybe the quantity of those meetings. Uh, too many meetings, too little quality of them. Um, then this high degree of distraction. We have, we, like from start to finish, we have urgent emails, urgent Slack messages, urgent calls. It's hard to build something meaningful when you're always busy kind of putting out fires as well. Um, maybe two other common kind of barriers is, uh, I guess, employees feeling micromanaged, especially now where 
you know, they're working from home and then their employers feel like, I don't know what my employee is doing. So they have to report every second, every minute of their work to me to make sure that they're doing the job and not watching YouTube. Uh, but that's can have very, very harmful productivity consequences as well. Uh, and that comes into maybe the last part of like just work-life balance, like work-life balance, you know, when does work start and when does work stop? When you work at home, that becomes a very blurry line, right? And so think about some solutions for those specific problems. So first of all, like what I've been advising and, and having really good feedback on people experimenting with is having a quota on meetings. So that have can only have X amount of either meetings per day or, or timing meetings per day, because we're really good at working with constraints. And so if we know we can only be in a meeting for let's say one hour per day, then we're gonna make the most of that meeting, right? So that's that's one way to manage meetings. Um, I would say a general way of looking at the work-life balance thing uh, is to have clear rules and I guess boundaries around online communication. So one of the biggest harmful things you can do as a manager, I would say today, is emailing your staff at 9 p.m. or on the weekends, right? Because mm -hmm. you're never giving your employees a chance to switch off and just you know have that needed time away from work. And so mm -hmm. just schedule the email to be sent in the mornings that you can type it in the evening. If you if you feel like working in the evening, that's fine. But I've seen a lot of organizations do really well when they have this kind of guidelines around, okay, we only communicate online between, let's say, 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. Because that actually gives people some form of, I guess, ability to actually put down their phones and spend time with their family or go outside and actually do things outside and having to always look at the email or always look at the Slack. So, so those are some solutions. But again, I think it depends on what kind of problems you're trying to solve as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Ivan, I know I know you have plenty to add here, but I want to add a, a, a quick point. That first of all, the the scheduling of emails life changing for those of you who who are very much like me and typing emails at nighttime. Schedule it is the way to go on the Outlook. Um, but you're absolutely right about the getting to that root cause because what we see often with companies, even that we work with uh, in this part of the world, is that. We're, we're slapping a band-aid on a broken leg. So we're, you know, management, let's say leadership of companies are not necessarily focusing on the real challenges, the real issues, right? And sometimes it's in the management as well because you know, the, it needs to come from top down, this, this, the, the, kind of, uh, the kind of culture that you're talking about, they're not emailing your employees, right? Essentially as managers, there's a lot of control that these individuals have about setting the tone for that work-life balance. So, and oftentimes we just, you know, throw out Fitbits into our employees and say, yes, we've hit our well-being agenda for this year. Everybody got a Fitbit. We did our job, but it didn't do anything. And I think because the, the, the actual impact, which is on the mental health, is where the real driver is, is on that behavioral change that employees essentially need perhaps uh, help with in that sense. Yvonne, you want to pick up on that as well? Yeah, I, I wanted to because it was very insightful what Sam just mentioned. In fact, that it starts with the culture. In fact, every company has a different uh, set of pro uh, problems. But in behavioral science, there is a concept also the, that, that says that in order to make it something that is, is going to happen, something that to make it feasible, in fact, you will need to, to break it down in small chunks, small pieces. So it's almost like culture, which is kind of, at the ultimate goal where an organization wants to go, it needs to broken down into actions, behaviors, and these behaviors also become is little pieces of actions, or this in this case we that we are going to call it habits that can be implemented across the individual uh, the individual in order to reduce waste uh, waste in terms of uh, quantity of uh, um, of meetings, quantity of of, of communication or anything that can affect productivity and well-being because what we know in fact is that both are super uh, super linked uh, there is a, an an interaction between both uh, between the productivity and the mental well-being of, of of people if one doesn't go correctly the other can doesn't happen sam is that my understanding is that correct or would you tweak it a little bit more no, that's, that's in large degree, I think, a good way to look at it, for sure. 
And Sam, so and now that we're, we're talking about, we understand the challenge, let's try to put it into a little bit of practice. So can organizations actually start creating a strategy that uses behavioral science? So if, if there is, what kind of, are there any companies that are doing it well? Maybe some of the clients you worked with, how do they actually implement these sort of strategies? Sure. So it's called like a behavioral science for a reason. So the science part is important as much as the behavioral part is important. So I guess what I would think about this in many ways is just thinking about from a little bit of a scientific perspective that you don't just take something that worked for someone else and then assume it will work for you. I heard earlier when I was, I think in my first job a long time ago, that when you assume you make an ass of you and me. And so yeah. we should, uh, instead we should form hypothesis and test. And so hypothesis is a kind of a fancy word, but it just means that we have some form of, let's say statement that we can uh, test and prove. And so for example, that could be, if we stop sending emails between 7 p.m. and 8 a.m., we will increase employee well-being um, by some metric. And then evaluate that a month later to see has that worked? Like, does this actually improve uh, our, our well-being among employees, like what has been the kind of the results of this? I think um, one way to think about, I don't know if this is a good metaphor, um, I happen to like Formula One, so I think it's a metaphor that works for me, <laughs> is that when we think about behavior, it has some similarities with, with thinking about Formula One. So we talk a lot about in behavior, but you know, we can both, when we change behavior, we can add fuel or we can reduce friction. And so that's the same thing with obviously if you have a Formula One car, uh, you can either add a bigger engine, you can improve the engine or the fuel uh, efficiency, or you can reduce friction, you can make it more uh, aerodynamic and so on. And I think it's a general thing, we spend too much time worrying about the fuel, especially with behavior, we spend too much time on motivation to think about how can we motivate people more. And we don't spend enough time on just reducing friction in a way, it's like reducing, removing barriers and so on. And we should approach this the same way as you would do as if, if you were running a Formula One team and that you don't swap the car from one race to the next. You, you make small changes and then test and see if they make a difference. And I think that's, that's how you do behavioral science if you want to do it right. You, you take what seemed to be a good solution, but you test it to make sure it works for you as well. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I like it. The Formula One analogy, that's what we're going to call it, by Samuel. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, Formula One in Dubai at some sort of Abu Dhabi, if you invite me. Yes. <laughs> we will. Post-COVID, we will. Yeah, absolutely. Ivan, anything there? Anything you want to add? No, no, not yet, but yes. I will, I will anyways. Okay. Um, I have one more thing that I forgot to answer, actually, your, your, your second part of the question. You answered, yes. What is actually some good that can give some example of this? So, so one uh, I would say is um, I think Google has a good case study recently that I came across that I think was a really good example of how I think about behavioral science in practice. And so they had this big challenge of we have thousands and thousands, like hundreds of thousands of employees spending a lot of time in our workplaces. And so we're responsible for their health in some ways. And they felt that maybe they weren't contributing to the health and well-being of their employees that they hoped. And so they wanted to get them to especially eat better and get better nutritional value into their uh, kind of daily diet and so to say. And so if you would look at what most people do still, it will be, okay, let's send out an information campaign around the company. Let's have a lot of uh, like all across Slack and emails inform people about ways to move and eat better. Uh, but Google didn't do any of that. They didn't care at all about informing people. Instead, they thought about some of the kind of nuances of the office spaces, and especially around, obviously, the, the cafeteria and so on. And so what they did was only regarding this kind of uh, friction thing. And so what they spent a lot of time on is, is making it a little more hard, more difficult to eat unhealthy. So where you had the snacks and the coffee on the same table before, they separated them by about five, 10 meters. So there was still a space where you can get some like snacks, so to say, but they were not next to the coffee. And so you wouldn't just randomly take the snacks while you were getting your coffee. For example. 
so there was some of those stuff like made it harder to do the undesired behavior. Um, and then they made it really easy to just be more healthy as well. So they, uh, for example, a good example again is in the, where you can get the drinks, you can see behind the fridge, you can see all the water, but the, the, the kind of the more unhealthy drinks were also in the fridge, but they were kind of on a deep, on a lower shelf that you didn't see from outside. And so these small shifts had a really big effects. Uh, so people drank, I think it was four times as much water as they did before. Um, you saw it reducing snacking by about 25%, even though they didn't necessarily remove any snack. They, they had the same stations there. So a lot of those changes, but just coming from these kind of subtle, subtle shifts uh, in their environments. Love it. This is a good example. It can be applied also for reducing the number of emails per, per day, in fact. Imagine that you shut down completely the server for email during the night. That would be great. <laughs> you remove the friction. Yeah, I love the concept of this. It's just the small changes. So it doesn't, and this is what I think that where we go wrong often as individuals and as organizations. We want to implement these huge changes and it's not really necessary because actually you can do those small things like what you've mentioned that actually lead to those big results. And another perception that often people and companies have is that it's expensive to implement this. But now with technology, in fact, we can make these sort of, you know, habit creation, these sort of behavioral changes and things that we implement at work or in our lives much more accessible and affordable, essentially. So is there any emerging tech uh, trends in tech that you know about? I know you're going to be sharing with us something cool later on, but is there anything that uh, you know uh, about within within the space that can be beneficial to companies or individuals? Sure. So, so this last example, that was more talking about the traditional workspace, right? But I guess we should also talk about more, like you said, digital workspaces. Um, so there's definitely, I think, an emergence in in tools. Uh, so one idea that's very important to know if you talk about variable science is the idea of the intention action gap. So the basic idea there is that we have a lot of good intentions every day. So we have intentions to eat healthy, to move, to be good parents, good employees, all of these kind of things. But sometimes there's a gap between what we intend to do and what we actually end up doing. So we might intend to eat a salad, uh, go for a run, and do something more, but we end up eating pizza and watching Netflix instead. That's the kind of the intention action gap. And so what we're seeing more and more is smart online tools that are supporting people in bridging that gap. So that could be both supporting managers, improving their communication. Uh, for example, you have something like Humu, um, Nudged, uh, some tools that are coming about that kind of aims to improve communication among teams. So they know that a lot of managers they might be have a lot of great qualities, but there's a lot of tasks on the shoulder of a manager. And maybe they don't always remember to give enough feedback or give enough encouragement and praise and, and, and or ask the right question all the time. And so they kind of send timely reminders through digital means uh, to kind of nudge managers to, to kind of ask the right questions or, or give the right types of feedback. Um, then you have things like Signal, which is a UK-based company for mostly um, so pilots and uh, ship captains. Um, and so they know that that's a very demanding task. And there's a lot of, again, things, things to be aware of. And so they've introduced kind of nudges in that environment to promote better uh, well-being in those situations. And so, for example, they were working with Virgin Airlines and through these kind of like quite small nudges, they were able to uh, save, I think it was 6 million pounds in fuel and increase job satisfaction by 15% uh, among the kind of pilots for Virgin Islands. Um, and that was just, again, it was like people know a lot of things they should do, but they forget to do them all the time. So they maybe don't feel like they, they know exactly how to do them all the time. And so these kind of timely digital interventions can be really powerful to kind of nudge us to, to act the right way. Yeah. It's all in those small, small cues and reminders, absolutely. Um, so uh, I just have maybe a couple more questions. So this is a good time for you guys to start dropping your questions, uh, comments in the question box, in the chat box. So start uh, bringing those in. So uh, Sam, another question for you while we're waiting for questions to come in. When it comes to well-being and productivity, and you know maybe also with the changes we're experiencing in this situation, 
is the, how do, how are we doing a, a a good job measuring it essentially, or you know looking at performance of, of our employees? Like, are we really doing it right? Are we doing it wrong? Is there a better way to do this? Because I feel that organizations, as you mentioned earlier, many are kind of micromanaging their employees, and part of that is lack of trust and 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 a, a lot of other issues, perhaps from leadership perspective. But you know, what are what are better ways for us to actually look at performance when it comes to well-being or productivity of our teams? That's a great question, and in some ways, that's somewhat like a million-dollar question. Um, <laughs> It's quite a very hard and challenging thing to, to measure, right? So productivity is this concept we throw around a lot, but it's sometimes hard to put a finger on what it will actually mean by being productive or well-being as well. Like, what does it mean where someone is high in well-being? What is the kind of things we're measuring there? And so, so I think uh, there are different ways to go about that. There's obviously much more tools these days to do that if you want to have online ways of measuring well-being or uh, those kind of metrics uh, you can definitely do that i think it's in some ways i would say that maybe organization make it more harder for them than it actually is sometimes uh, in that like you say they would have a lot of focus on rolling things out like fitbits um, which is very kind of like top-down approach, but just like we assume this is going to work and this is going to be a solution. But uh, I think where the kind of rubber is the road is just as you would do this, you would develop a product, you will get user feedback. You would try to do the same thing if you have a company and you want to kind of develop productivity or well-being improvements in your company. You want to have a really quick feedback loop within your company to understand uh, is this working and for whom and so on. And one of the concepts mm. that I think good is you're thinking about kind of bright spots in that there's always um, some people that I work for and some people that doesn't work for and understanding the two of the two of those groups are really interesting and so understanding is like okay so if someone has gotten a lot of value from let's say the Fitbit you know, that you gave out why like what is the reason why they've used it every day to and gave get gotten 10,000 steps and then conversely what has been the barrier for the people who have not used it and so then by kind of separating those groups, you can get a better sense of, okay, what is the motivation for people that are using it? And what is the barriers for people that are not using it? And so that, that can be like a very simple way to just like starting to segment and, and better understand the problem. We have a couple of questions coming in, but uh, my final question to you, if you had a magic wand, okay, magic little stick, how could you actually make corporates to train their people in habit creation. So getting corporates to focus more on that behavior, on that habit creation and the nudging versus the Fitbits versus the, you know, let's get together for an eight hour training a day, which doesn't yield any results. And it's just exhausting and, you know, doesn't, doesn't bring benefit. I don't want to say more about it, but <laughs> so it's very much uh, just a waste of money essentially and time. So if you had a magic wand, let's just imagine, what would you, how would you do it? I love that question. I feel like I should one do one thing before, because we actually haven't talked too much about habits, actually. So maybe I should just yeah. define what habit is and, and how you build them in, in very short form. So habit is also an automatic behavior. So behavior that's become more automatic. So it requires less cognitive thinking and effort in doing. And it has, I would say, four components you can look at it. So the first thing, it has to be activated. Uh, so sometimes we talk about it as being triggers, sometimes cues, prompts, a lot of names for it. But the basis that before something has become automatic, we forgot to do it. So we have to be reminded to do these things in order to do them. And so that's why it can be really powerful to obviously have effective reminders, especially in the beginning of trying to do something new. Because it's not part of your kind of habits, and so you're not going to be doing them uh, without thinking. It's going to be needing some form of reminder. Second component is the kind of the ease of doing the behavior. And so you want to make the behavior as easy as possible. And that's when you come into more thinking about how you can either reduce the kind of external forces, so uh, friction points, but also maybe uh, improve people's ability uh, or perceivability. Uh, and then the third thing uh, is obviously the kind of things called after behavior. So once you've done something, uh, what is the consequence for doing it? So if you wanted people to 
fill in a report or whatever we want them to do. But like, what is the consequence that happens afterwards? Because uh, consequences are going to be really important. Uh, if you have a positive one, uh, for example, I'm drinking my coffee here. A big point of that is that it requires, it, it gives me a really positive consequence. It tastes good for me and it gives me a little bit of like alertness. Uh, if it didn't taste good and it didn't have, you know, some form of sense of alertness, who the heck would drink coffee? Uh, so consequences are important as well. And then the last component, uh, which ties this in together, is just this kind of deal of repetition. And repetition, uh, and this is probably one of the things that people understand the, the least, in that it's not only about repeating, but repeating things in a stable context. And so what that means is that it's not only just, let's say, doing the behavior over and over again, but it's helping our brain making this behavior thoughtless. And what required for that is that we should be kind of in the same place around the same kind of time and also maybe doing the same around behaviors before and after. And so we're pretty much teaching our brain to be like, when we're in this place at this time, after having this behavior, we do this thing. And so that's the biggest thing people forget is thinking about the, the kind of the context component. So the reason, there's a big reason why brushing our teeth is such a sticky habit because we have, we have so much contextual things part of that, both the morning and the evenings, both the bathroom, a lot of these things, right? Uh, so that's, that's kind of your habit course, uh, crash course, like very, very quickly. Uh, hopefully that was something that made sense. So uh, to your question, my magic wand would look at that from, yeah, from my perspective and think about, okay, so first of all, I would try to remove all the barriers and distractions. Um, I would want my uh, team to have the least amount of meetings they feel like they have to multitask in. So set a cap on meetings, for example, uh, I would like my team to not have to uh, always be in stressed work mode. Uh, and so very important, especially for kind of work-life balance, is then, for example, something like capping uh, or also stopping emails by a certain time, those kind of things. Um, I would almost, uh, <laughs> there was this funny thing in, in Netherlands where they actually, uh, architecture firm, where they actually raised the tables and chairs at 6 p.m. So you couldn't actually do work past 6 p.m. But I'm not a, I'm not so much for that because I think people some people work at night and that's great for them. So that's something I would be fine with. Work whatever you feel like, but communication should be uh, kind of capped within a certain time. Um, and then we try to add these kind of nudges to support people in in making kind of the kind of relief or their intentions to their actions. So. Um, maybe force people to, or actually this is what I've done sometimes, is this force people to actually plan every day with what I call deep work. So that's maybe two hours, at least maybe once or twice per day, where no one can talk to you, no one can kind of get in touch with you, and you have two hours uninterrupted to do kind of what task you want to do. And so that sounds obvious. Like if you want to be productive, two hours of uninterrupted time sounds obvious. But who of us gets that? Like it's quite uncommon a lot of times. And so if you can provide your team with the luxury of having two hours per day where they're not disturbed, at least I can have, you can have more, four hours, um, that's a great gift you can give to your team. Um, mm -hmm. I can go on and on, but, but maybe that gives you some, some ideas. Yeah, no, that's great. And you know, there's a lot of studies that's been done to say, what is the biggest distraction in the workplace? And people would guess social media or something else. And as fact, it's our colleagues. <laughs> and this whole open space concept just doesn't work very well because we're just continuously distracted and we're not able to go into that, that deep work that you're talking about or the flow state, right? The, the state of flow where we're just uninterrupted and we're focused and we're just, you know, getting the work done. Absolutely. Yeah. Yvonne, anything here? Yes, uh, I, I like what Sam, the introduction that Sam has uh, has uh, has mentioned. Um, I, I I was just thinking that if I could borrow Sam's magic wand, I will also <laughs> review how people is learning in corporations right now. So there is uh, a study done by Deloitte very recently that shows that uh, in mental well-being, a lot of the symptoms that come are because um, they mentioned so many symptoms that are related to trainings that usually they should have been receiving. Like for instance, if I 
people who have too many priorities. 52%, they say, this is the, the, the reason why I, I have mental health symptoms, workload, uh, not supported by in my role, negative relationships, and you can name it, in fact. But if people could learn how to create habits, how to create, in fact, um, a process, they could overcome all these challenges that are, are impacting our, our mental health. So it's, it's not even a, about how many hours of training. They just need one training and being capable of designing themselves the habits that Samuel was mentioning just, uh, just before. And a lot of the problems could be sol solved because then you have the productivity, the mental, mental well-being done, covered by just teaching or, or learning how to learn the, uh, the employees. Absolutely. And I love it because some of the things we're talking about, so, so for those people that are here, maybe from a leadership perspective or HR perspective, these are the things you can actually implement with your teams. And on individual, it's the same thing because when it comes to habit creation and behavior, this is something we can surely implement on ourselves and, and help and support other people to do the same. So um, we're welcoming your questions, guys. So let me come back to the distraction question and, um, uh, and the, the work-home balance. So somebody asked, to what extent uh, is the email and social media technology changing to help us have better work-home balance today provides very, very basic features? So how is social media changing to help us have a better work-life balance? Sure. So I think um, the biggest problem with social media is that it's itself itself as being something that it's not. Itself it's as like in the word it's a social media, right? And so of course it's defined by like being online with a lot of people. But what I would say most of the time it it's it lacks the kind of more fundamental parts of what it means to have a meaningful social interaction. So if you're scrolling through a Facebook or Instagram feed, very rarely the best can continue like uh, a meaningful social interaction, right? It's, it's as close as thing you can have to some form of social thing stalking, right? It's not really having a social interaction, it's more um, looking at what other people are doing. And so I think that is somewhat kind of the illusion that sometimes uh, social media can bring is that, you know, you feel like you're connected, you feel like you're doing social things, but you're not really getting those things that were made from, from a kind of biological perspective in humans. What really give us nourishment and, and fulfillment is actually speaking with people, connecting with people, having a conversation with people, those kind of things, right? So mm -hmm. time, these are tools so that you can see great examples of Facebook groups where actually people have meaningful interactions. You can see places on Instagram as well, people have meaningful kind of exchanges of sort. But a lot of these tools are not really made for that, and they're made to, to facilitate um, ads being shown to people in an effective way. And so, so I think, yeah, we have to maybe change expectations on the modern social media tools, maybe uh, have different expectations on, on what we want for it to be in the future. <laughs> and so, so I think that's kind of the big thing here, is that we should see these tools for what they are right now. And for me, they are not so social. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Anything here, Yvonne? No, no, no. That's fine for me. I agree with everything that Sam said, and I thank him for mentioning that, really. Yeah, and um, uh, the the famous author, the Near Yale, so he talks about the, uh, I'm sure you've heard of him, Samuel, the Indistractable, the book Indistractable, and this is, and he also mentions some, some of the, some of the points that you mentioned, and he's saying that essentially, you know, uh, it's it's actually you could you can create a new habit to avoid using social media. So almost we need to replace the routine of always going to that social media with something new and to to distract ourselves basically from from social media and to focus on something else. And you know, when when I speak with clients about you know uh, decreasing the use of social media on the individual level. And people always tell me that it's so difficult and I, I have to remind everybody and also myself and people on this webinars to say that you have control over how much social media you use essentially. So it's about implementing some of that uh, new behaviors to maybe avoid using social media as much um, as you do at the moment. Elena, yeah. you're seeing a little bit of what Sam mentioned before. So before he was mentioning about 
removing friction in order to achieve our goal. So for social media, you have to add friction in order not to not to do it. Yep, whatever works, right? Um, yeah, other because yeah. I I know Nir is actually a friend, and we talk about this quite a lot. And so um, uh, what I would say is that distraction comes from something that's sometimes overlooked, and that's discomfort, right? So mm -hmm. when we're seeking these tools, it is to be social um, in some ways, but it's also to avoid being bored and being overwhelmed and stressed and having some form of sadness, maybe, or those kind of negative feelings. And so that is actually something we can somewhat control from an organization perspective, that if you want to make people more productive, one thing we can do is when we reduce these things that trigger discomfort, like stress, overwhelm, those kind of things, uh, it is much less likely that it will be triggered to, to procrastinate. Because that's usually what makes people to go into these social platforms a lot of times, is that they, um, they, yeah, they, they want to avoid something negative. They want to avoid boredom. They want to avoid stress. And so if you can remove that trigger, the stressful trigger, or the you know, um, the, the boredom or or those kind of things. That that can be a big, big impact that we can do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, while we have the questions coming in, I want to give you the space to also share the habit canvas. So let me go ahead and give you the the control so that you can go ahead and share that. This is something really cool and I think it'll be really interesting for our audience. So you are now the presenter, so you should have control so you can share your screen. Sure, uh, let's see. Okay, so I thought I'll, I'll share two things real quick. Um, so firstly, it's the Habit Canvas. Um, very quickly, that's something I've created to make it easier for people to um, pretty much both implement, uh, track, and plan habits. And so it's something you can access for free. It's on my website. It's pretty much just a combination of a lot of good research into kind of one canvas to promote better habits. So it's something that's been used now by thousands of people around the world. It's free to use again. And so uh, no strings attached. Um, it's really just something that I want to share with the community. And um, so that's something you can explore here on my website. Uh, another thing, uh, if you want to learn more about kind of habits and so on, is that I've actually started something pretty cool um, within my newsletter. And so it's this thing called interactive case studies. And so um, now I'm just showcasing what this kind of looks like. And um, I have a weekly list in my newsletter. It's to make it easy to kind of learn about habits and be able to sign. And what I've been doing with that more now is to want it to make it even easier. And so and also the more fun. And so what I want it to be when you're trying to learn about kind of becoming a better behavioral designer or learning by habits is that it should always feel as fun as doing kind of yoga in the MLS. Um, and so what I've been doing is building this kind of case study platform where I am trying to show, show, showcase kind of how kind of products around the world are using um, behavioral design and also giving up space for kind of some of the experts. Uh, you have Nier's face, face there actually talking about Nier uh, to kind of share these things uh, as well in a more fun, interactive way. And so this is still not launched yet. This is still kind of early going. Um, but if you want to sign up for the waitlist, um, you can do that. Um, and uh, so that's something as well that I'm really excited to, to soon release. Um, and so, so yeah. Those two things is probably what I would say is, is what I would recommend people to check out on, on my end. Great. And, and so I'm... what was it the website the website in order to sign up for the habit weekly and reserve the spot for the upcoming tool? Yes, I can I don't know if you can share if you just share this link. So it's habitweekly slash habitweekly.com, yeah. I've dropped the um the website as well. So I know you can access it from there, habitweekly.com. Yeah, so you have the uh, the website for the Habit Canvas and the Habit Weekly as well. Oh, yep. I misspelled it. The second link, Habit Weekly, there you go. Yeah, so you guys can access it 
I think it's going to be, so for those of you who are really looking to kind of, or who need help a little bit with creating those habits, um, absolutely using the tools that are available that's out there is absolutely something that Ivan and I also practice that we, we like to use. Tools is what makes it easier for us. So, and thank you for sharing your tool with us, uh, Samuel. It's great. Um, any questions, any other questions from you guys? We'll give them a moment. Any questions about habits, how you can implement uh, this at your work? Any question, any things that you might be uh, challenged with at the moment, perhaps when it comes to habit creation, we still have a few minutes. So, uh, in fact, I have a question. So the, the origin, and I would like to have the views of Sam on, that, on this, the origin of the habit creation, why it works, why there has been such a, uh, a lot of publicity, a lot of books uh, regarding the habit creation right now. Uh, where does it come from? Where is the, what is the science? How did it come so well known only in the late three, four years? It's actually very interesting. So there's this really, if you Google William James and habits, you will actually find some talks about habits about mm -hmm. 100 and 20 years ago, so early 1900s, they were talking about how important habits were. So it's not a new thing per se, right? But like you say, uh, for a long time, habits didn't have this sexy name as it is now. Uh, and so you can, I guess what we're seeing is people started thinking about it from a different perspective. So initially people thought about habits as this kind of um, somewhat boring, rigid thing. Yeah. As kind of, you know, being a robot, just doing things kind of as a robot. But what people have discovered more and more is that, well, that is true to a certain degree. We're acting automatically when we're talking about habits. But what they allow us to do is to do and spend more time on the more meaningful things we want to do in our lives. So if we can set up good habits and routines, um, then we can dedicate more of our thoughts and efforts into the more meaningful moments and, and kind of spaces of our days and our, our times. And so I think that is what I see the kind of the best part of habit is, is to outsource some of maybe the more menial stuff and not having to think too much of maybe some of the basic stuff and, and dedicating more time to thinking about the hard problems or, or the hard challenges or more meaningful challenges, at least on a daily basis. And, um, and yeah, I think definitely uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg was one of those books that definitely helped kind of launch launch the habits somewhat revolution but um but yeah um it's it's fascinating it's fascinating it is great uh one one fun story i can say is that if you heard that it takes 21 days to form a habit it's actually a very common kind of myth and it comes from a very unusual space and it comes from this plastic surgeon in the 1940s and so uh, he noticed that his patients, uh, after having done a kind of some form of reconstructive surgery, it took them about 21 days to get used to the new limb or the new kind of body uh, shape or whatever it was that changed. And he thought, well, maybe if it was the same for my patients, maybe it's the same for all changes in our lives that we take 21 days to get used to them. Um, and he wrote a really famous book in the 40s and 50s in the US. And so that's still the reason why a lot of people think it takes 21 days to form habits. It's because this plastic surgeon said that in the 1940s. And so I hate to break it to you, but it doesn't take 21 days. Um, it's much more complex than that. It depends on the habit. Uh, so it can take from 14 days to more than hundreds of days. It depends on the complexity of the habit and the behavior. Absolutely. Yeah, it depends on that ability that you were talking about, how difficult it is. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because there's so many people that are talking about, you know, the five steps to do this, you know, the 21 days that are going to change your life. And I think it's, it's becoming more and more obvious that there's no one way to do something. There's no one way to achieve, but if there was an easier way, it's definitely through the methodology of habit creation. That is what you see over and over again. And I cannot stress it enough that it's the small steps, the small habits that are easier on our brain that makes it stick. And that's how change essentially happens. So absolutely. All right. Any questions? You guys are very quiet today. I see they're engaged, but okay, here we go. We have a question. So um, 
organizations uh, many times consciously allow some negative culture to flourish. And if you raise issues related to a department or function, uh, it is taken personally by individuals or managers. How can leadership change this culture? So basically, how can you change the culture that, you know, we're not taking things personally if somebody has an, uh, something that we've done, offended, whatever it may be. How can leadership change this culture? Either one of you. It's not about habit necessarily, but it's uh, it's a very good question. Yvonne? Yeah. It it's a hard question because it's like it comes into this idea of this talking about changing habits because it's it's we're talking about changing bad habits, right? We're talking about changing ingrained behavior that has kind of been made to uh, maybe flourish even though they shouldn't have. Uh, and uh, and so so yeah, I think it's it's hard to have like this kind of one size fits all solution for these kind of problems. Um, one of the things is that it's hard if you're kind of very low level and trying to punch your way up. It's I sympathize with everyone in that situation because it's it's a lot of these kind of things starts middle and top and, and go the way down. And so it's it's very important that kind of you know management and leadership take real ownership responsibility for the, these kind of things, right? But when it comes to this idea of like people having strong reactions to feeling negative about, uh, you know, uh, doing these kind of things, it's one of the things you, even though it's strange, <laughs> one of the things you have to do is understanding kind of what is the kind of, I wouldn't say maybe empathize or sympathize, but maybe trying to understand like how did this behavior form? Like what, no behavior form in a vacuum. And so even the worst behaviors solve a problem. And that sounds crazy to say, but it's it's true. And so you have to still understand kind of what, what is some of the root causes for this and what is kind of making this person behave this way. Um, rather than saying you said it's wrong, we shouldn't do this. It's still important to understand kind of the more underlying uh, components there. Yeah, absolutely. I... Kind of I would love to have a magic wand and just solve for someone. It's a, it's, yeah. I just wanted to mention that in a lot of the, very often, in fact, the failures of transformation for corporation comes from the fact that the, the culture hasn't been addressed. And by culture, I mean also the role modeling of the senior management towards the rest of the organization. So they, there is always, uh, there is, key reasons why there is transformation lasting for more than 10 years. Uh, and one of them, it is uh, the role modeling from senior management who is incapable of changing the previous behaviors, the, the lack of communication or transparency about where do you want to go. And the third thing is about the, the, uh, the fact that they do not empower the organization to learn, to unlearn what they knew and to learn new, new, uh, new things. But definitely the fact that if a, a company decides to go into a transformation and the senior management is not changing behaviors, that is pointless to go into, uh, into a new way of doing business. And we have a couple more questions. So, and I think we'll, we'll be right at the time. So the next question is a really great one. So how much of what we and science know about changing habits can be useful for the way children are brought up so they have more self-awareness and ability to commit to change habits as they discover themselves. We need to learn how to change ourselves and our habits from a young age. So how can we maybe implement this with, with children? You know, I love this question. That's a really great question. And so it's, it's, it's a great question for many perspectives just because talking about being behavioral designers, there's actually a few people that have to be really good behavioral designers as you know, the kind of both parents and, and children, you know, children are really good at making their parents do things for them, right? And conversely, parents have to be trained or have to learn, find ways to be really good at making the children eat the food and all of these kind of things, right? So that's a very natural course in behavioral design is to being a parent or interacting with children. Uh, but I think what really this question thinks about is like, how do we empower children to not only follow their kind of gut instinct of kind of how to manipulate parents, but actually how to, you know, uh, become better at creating kind of productive habits and so on. Uh, 
And so actually the question touched upon a very big important component, it's self-awareness. And so it is helping um, children becoming more self-aware about what is triggering their behavior. So when they act in a certain way, um, rather than just, for example, scolding or punishing or doing, you know, I think helping the child, children understand themselves, like what, what made me kind of do this behavior? What is, what is activated in me or outside of me to do this behavior? And both, maybe both as a parent and child, have a fun game of playing like choice architects of like, how could we design our home to, to make it whatever we want it to be? If we wanted to make it more fun to eat healthy, like child children has a lot of good ideas for that. You can bring them on board to design things in your environments, in your homes, to make activities more uh, fun and, and enjoyable. Maybe sometimes it's hard, you can't really, you know, do certain things, uh, you know, children's imagination is maybe bigger than what can always be accomplished in real life. But, but still, that can be a good source of, of thinking about how we can change our environments to, to do things in a more fun way as well. Mm. But, but fostering awareness is, is, is a crucial component. Yeah, absolutely. Anything from you, Ivan, here? No, it made me, the question made me think that I think it was in Atomic Habits, the book, uh, that there is a specific chapter about kids. Either it is an addendum, I don't remember it clearly, but I saw a specific a uh, chapter about habit creation for kids, for raising mm -hmm. kids, in fact. <laughs> and um, the final one, and I think- One side caveat is that we have to never forget that the one thing that teaches the children the most is ourselves, right? So they're imitating us. And so a lot of the bad behavior seeing them, the one thing we have to look at is in the mirror usually. We have to understand kind of uh, what is, if you want to, you know, change the food habits of our children, you know, or especially I would say digital habits. Mm. By far the biggest thing, if you, a lot of people complain about kids being addicted to smartphones and all this kind of stuff. Well, it starts with us, right? Kids weren't born with a smartphone out of the womb. You know, it, we gave it to them or we, they, they, they learn how to use it by watching us. And so we have to somewhat lead with example as well, I think. Absolutely, this is I right. The only time it was acceptable to to let a kid spend so much time on iPads is during the the lockdown, at least here in Dubai, because otherwise I think people would have just That's been right. losing. And the the final the final point, and I think it's a great last question to end with, is somebody asked if you would like to leave us with one sentence tip for the well-being in mid of COVID nineteen madness. What would it be? So maybe one from you, Sam, and also from Yvonne, from you. One sentence tip. And how do we maintain our well-being among this madness that we're going through? Um, so I would try to kind of make a sentence of a couple of things in one. So I would say my one tip is to make sure that in general being kind of kind to yourself through giving yourself moments of movement and stillness. I would say it's very important. So one or one or both in terms of when I say stillness, it means also silence and so on. And so one of the best things you can do, and I was one of the things that I can attest to myself that was something that really changed things for me, is that it sounds stupid, but I actually started and ended each day with taking a kind of a walk around the neighborhood for five minutes without listening to anything, without you know doing anything, just taking a walk five minutes around the neighborhood before I start working. And once I finished our working. And so those two five minute sets of like just not uh, always being absorbed with information or those kind of things, and also just moving my body, extremely important. So we have to be, you know, kind to ourselves and ensuring ourselves that we uh, give ourselves some space to just think and move, I think is really important. Hmm. Even just small yeah. things, just five minutes, you know, every hour or, or before lunch, like just, just, just moving. And, and I think one of the biggest research insights is that if you compare having coffee with moving, it's actually, more, if you want to boost your productivity, like a small combination of, of movement and stillness, like, like just a couple of minutes of silent meditation, for example, with some movement, is much more effective than, you know, uh, Red Bull and coffee and those kind of things. Uh, <laughs> So if you really want to be productive, that's that's a really powerful thing we can utilize. 
Absolutely. Yvonne, anything from you for one sentence? Yes. In one okay. sentence, so there is a <laughs> no, don't worry. Uh, there is a, a lot of discussions coming back to the, our normal life. So what I have to say is just that our previous normal wasn't that great. It affected our well-being. We weren't that productive. We have an opportunity to change everything that was dictated by us by the previous normal. So we don't want anymore this previous normal. We want a, a new, a new start for our lives with this COVID, with this crisis. We want to, to reconsider the um, um, what was the previous normal. Mm. I think I think that's great. Um, and the last comment somebody mentioned is in COVID nineteen era, finding our new balance is the new challenge. Well, hopefully mm. with the creation of habits of some tips that you learned, and hopefully you're going to be using the uh, habit canvas that Samuel very kindly shared with us. Uh, you can be on the way to essentially find that balance. So you still might some have some questions. Definitely connect with um, Samuel on LinkedIn, follow his content. He posts uh, in his newsletter. I get those, Samuel, so thank you very much. I like to read up on them. They're, they're, they're definitely nice nudges as well. So um, thank you so much. If there's any final words from you guys, feel free from my side. I thank you, the audience. Thank you for your attention, your questions. Samuel, thank you for your time and your uh, input today. Thank you very much, Samuel. It was very insightful. Great. Well, my pleasure. It was really great to uh, speak with you and hopefully uh, everyone has gotten some new insights to take with them. And, and maybe next time we'll be speaking at a Abu Dhabi Formula One circuit. We'll see. <laughs> it's great. On the calendar. Yes. All right, Samuel. Thank you again. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.